Hello and welcome to the Barefoot Paws podcast. I'm your host Stu. Today we will unwrap season one's episode 18 and we shall call this one the social systems of dogs. We are going to be looking particularly at multi-dog households and we're going to be establishing how we can affirm safe fluid movement through a dog's hierarchy within your home. So this was a question that was posed on the Barefoot Paws podcast discussion group on Facebook. And the question really was, or the root cause is, how can I make sure that my dogs get along, even though I may have one dog that is ready to move up the ranks and another dog who is not ready to move down the ranks? We're going to start to unpack that, and that's going to be another, um, a whole bunch of information that's going to help us to climb the mountain to create useful functional performance with enthusiasm, effort, and execution in our dogs. So let's unwrap episode 18. The root of this question comes down to a definition in socialization. So let's define what socialization is. Socialization is where we establish our relationship with other living beings. So for us humans, socialization pertains to how we deal with other people, different types of people, different looks of people, different gender, um, different nationalities, different looks, uh, different cultures, those sorts of things. How do I deal with different people? Uh, It also deals with how we um, establish a relationship with animals. So the way we would treat a puppy is very different to how we would treat a big furry spider. Um, Those are aspects of socialization. Somewhere along the line, socialization has been hijacked to create this utopian notion that our dogs should and must love everything that we can ever expose them to. If someone wants to come up and pat my dog, well, they should be allowed to do that. If another dog wants to come up and sniff my dog, then they should be allowed to do that, and my dog should like it. Thank you very much. But it's not... It, it, reality kind of kicks that in the face a fair bit because what we are doing then is we are... We're taking away the God-given right for our dogs to feel something. Our dogs have emotions. That's beyond refute. They have emotions. They have emotional concepts. We've known that for a very long time. And technology is only really just able to keep up and uh, prove what, what the field already knows. But they're able to prove it in such a way that it is, um, it is irrefutable. So there's been, a, uh, there's been tests done with dogs that have been shown uh, pictures of their familial unit uh, from memory of their owners and the regions of the brain that fire fire just as intensely and in the same manner as human brains fire when they see pictures of their spouse. So the brain is a brain, right? At the, the very crux of it an amoeba the way that brain functions is not really very much different to a human so why should a dog then be any different now emotional concepts aside if we appreciate that our dogs have emotions then we can start to appreciate that things can go well But things can also not go as we planned and if we are then too proud then things will go sideways 
if we are humble, then we are able to put our own brakes on and realize, hey, something is amiss here. I need to change something up because ultimately your dog is on a lead. Your dog is with you wherever they you go and you control everything in their life, what they have access to, what they don't have access to. You control what food they eat, what water they drink. You control where they sleep, what they sleep on, where they sleep, uh, uh, what time they sleep, all sorts of stuff. So when our dogs do finally turn around and say, hey, this dog here, just not my style, or this dog here needs to be put in their place, or this dog here is scaring the jeebies out of me, then I need to be able to read that. I need to be able to understand that. I need to appreciate that because that way I can step in before things go sideways and say, hey, we need to have another plan. So for example, um, this episode really deals with um, sort of multi-dog households and uh, daycares, those sorts of things. So if you're looking at creating a social group with beneficial social dynamics, um, this episode is going to be pretty valuable to you in how to keep away or how to manage potential conflict situations and how to establish some um, some some good practices to make sure that your dogs aren't going to get involved in ripping each other apart. But it all comes down to a matter of socialization. If my dogs have been socialized well, that means that my dog is able to make their own decision as to how they should uh, hold their relationship with another living being. If my dog shuts down every time they see a dog, I'll call that bad socialization. If my dog is pulling me to get to every single dog that they can smell, I would call that bad socialization. If my dog is neutral to other dogs whilst they're on lead, I would call that good socialization. If my dog is able to go to daycare and is able to uh, without a great deal of friction, navigate the entire day of daycare, I would call that good socialization. If my dog is super wriggly and jumping down the throats of every other dog that's there, trying to lick and appease and throw these puppy behaviors out, it's bad socialization. If my dog is coming in super scared, so they're coming in blustering, chest out, shoulders up and ready to swing, that's bad socialization. So I need to be able to get my dog into a position whereby they can be tolerant of the world around them before I start to establish some hard and fast rules about how you can and cannot react to other living beings. Now, there is a hierarchy in every single relationship that we have. And again, our dogs are no different. We go to work. We have... Um, we have board directors, we have directors, we have CEOs, we have project managers, we have supervisors, team leaders, uh, shift supervisors, we have um, operators, we have technicians, we have engineers, we have all of these varying types of job descriptions on, on an organogram. And essentially, as flat and horizontal as we might like it, there is always a vertical aspect to any organization. There is always a top, there is always a bottom. Now, in the canine world, it's exactly the same. There is a top and there is a bottom. But they don't see the world the same way we do because they are predators and they're driven for survival. If our current upper rank is not able to give us the means to be able to survive, then that upper rank is going to have to go 
or it's going to have to put up a big fight and then we'll follow. So there's a dynamic aspect to it. Now, when we take that, that savage nature out, we put it into our homes, we don't have that same, we don't have that same hierarchy. Right? In, um, I think it was the 60s and 70s, I think it was, there was some really good studies that were done, which have unfortunately now been, um, well, they want to call them debunked. And I think that's kind of limiting the research and not really doing it the justice that I really do think it deserves in the contemporary times that we have now. Uh, but there was some research done on uh, pack behavior amongst uh, wild wolves. So basically they went out and they caught a bunch of, of wolves from a huge area. They brought them together, put them into, into uh, a pretty decent sized enclosure and monitored what would happen. And they found things such as resource guarding, aggression, all sorts of fights. It was a really horrible situation. But what they managed to find was there was an alpha omega relationship, i.e. there was uh, ahead of the pack, and then there was the runt of the pack, right? So one dog would never get beaten up, and the other one would spend their lifetime getting beaten up. Now, that particular study has led to all sorts of things like alpha dominance and all this sort of stuff. And that's not really what I want to have a look at. Um, because even the the team that were responsible for the research and published the white paper on it, that sort of stuff, they ended up coming back a few decades later and in the not-too-recent past and said, look, there's some serious flaws in our tests, so the data that we collected doesn't match up and doesn't reflect the true nature of what happens with those walls. See, one of the big things that they found was... Um, was aberrant in their test was that they were taking wolves from different packs and basically bringing them together and creating one surrogate pack. And that's not a natural thing. That's an artificial thing. So these wolves then, who are competing predators, who are not well socialized, i.e. they get along with their immediate family, or familial unit, but they are by nature and nurture, they are designed to reject a competing predator, that a competing predator has got to go. So it was creating a situation, basically it was creating a Thunderdome for a whole bunch of, do a whole bunch of wolves. And when they went and redid the experiment and they had a family unit what they found was that family unit was a lot more cohesive. There was a lot less friction for, in particular, for the same things. And it kind of refuted and debunked a lot of um, what, what was previously fact turned out to be false. But here's the thing. We can still take a bunch of that information and we can transpose that with some interpretation. But also with some accuracy, we can transpose that into how we live with our dogs today. So what Meech had done with, with their, their wolves in that first experiment is they took a whole bunch of, let's just call them canines, from different breeds, from different family units, and put them all into one backyard. And then they just kind of didn't take care of them, so to speak. They just chucked the food out the back and just let them sort it out. 
Now, we've all seen situations like that because when we break it down, just to kind of push that example out a little bit further, what we've got then is we have a bunch of dogs living together in a family unit. They get fed at the same time. There's no training. There's no coaching. There's no refereeing. There's no enrichment per se on a one-to-one basis because it's a multi-dog household. So it's kind of a case of, well, here's your food bowls. There's a food. Here's one water bucket. Um, Do your thing. And in the not too distant future, you're calling someone because your dog's ripping each other apart. Now go back to what I was talking to you before about the whole, um, that initial test was where they had foreign dogs from foreign families all put into one one, and then fights were breaking out for things. Whereas when they changed the test environment and they had a family unit, an existing healthy pack brought into a captive environment, the frictions that were, were observed then were not the same frictions and it's not the same intensity and not the same frequency as the frictions from the um, from the artificial pack. But what we have today in our multi-dog households is an artificial pack. What we have today in our daycares are exponential artificial packs. You could have up to 100 dogs a day in some daycares. None of them are related. Right? So there's, there's this constant there's this constant shift away from particularly that first study. Um, Meech is at M-E-C-H. Uh, he is one of the authors. I, I think it might have been... Oh, I can't remember right now. There were, there were other people involved, but Meech is, the, is kind of the big name. Um, you can look that up. There's a bunch of stuff on YouTube. There's a bunch of stuff on, on um, the internet. Uh, it, it's worthwhile looking it up. It, there's some really good things that have come out of it and that are able to be transposed into how we live with dogs today in our households. And we can also establish why there are certain points of conflict between our dogs, because ultimately, irrespective of how we make them work at home, they're still at heart competing predators. And it takes a lot of work to overcome that. Okay? So one of the things that they discovered was that hierarchies are dynamic and they're they're interchangeable. So let's put that into the context at home. Perhaps when you come home, you have the same dog coming up to you soliciting affection all the time. But maybe when you come in from the backyard or go into the backyard, it's the, the other dog has the rule of the roost. The other dog gets first access to you. Or perhaps one dog gets the choicest Um, relaxation position on the lounge but when there's bones around it's the other dogs that will outcompete the other one so there are different triggers that will then motivate dogs in different ways and very much like humans uh, some people like to crochet some people uh, like cricket some people like formula one some people like mountain bikes It's no different with our dogs. They have different motivations. They have different tastes. They have different things that get them going. And they also have a different level of desire to attain that thing, that goal. And if it's important to them, they'll push harder. If it's relatively meaningless to them, they're not going to worry about it too much. So the dynamics can be easily interchangeable. It can be subtle and it can be quite major. But it's important for us to understand that there generally isn't uh, 100% of the time that same dog is the number one dog and that same dog is the Amiga dog. It 
tends to be a lot more fluid, tends to be, that doesn't have to be. Which leads us kind of onto the next thing, which is social status. So I kind of break that down into elite dogs. Those are your upper echelon dogs that other dogs won't touch because they've worked their way to the, the, the top of the social, stat, uh, the social hierarchy. Then you kind of have your upper tier, your mid tier, your lower tier, and then your bottom tier dogs. Now the, there's a reason why I just kind of make a cut and thrust division amongst dogs that way. When you're looking at dogs in a daycare environment, you can, you, there are a bunch of things that you start to figure out and reasons as to why some dogs are more reactive and some dogs are more aggressive. Why some dogs are socially uncomfortable and some dogs are socially aloof. You know? Some of it is to do with breeding. Like There are certain breeds that um, have absolutely zero time for social exchanges. They're not interested in playing or hanging out with other dogs. They're just looking to do their thing. So some guardian breeds are like that. They're not interested in hanging out with other dogs. They're too busy protecting the world. So they're on a job. They've got to do something. That's a genetic drive. It's a genetic involuntary compulsion to do something. It's what they're bred to do. Yeah, it's like making a fish sit in water. It's not going to happen. They have to swim. Yeah. So your elite dogs are the dogs that have they have enough motivation to be at the top. It doesn't mean that what I say goes. What it does mean is if I want that thing, you have to give it to me. So if I want access to that human, I'm going to I'm going to work my way through a massive group of dogs and they're all going to leave me alone. And the reason why is there's always an implied or else. You will move out of my way or I will do something to you doesn't matter what that thing is. There are two types of elite dogs. There's the unstable dogs. So those are the ones that I notice tend to be more aggressive. They're the ones that will come out swinging pretty hard. And then you have your stable dogs. Those are the dogs that have no problems about being forwards and not being backwards. They're going to tell you exactly what they think, when they think it, without issue. It's not that there's a menace there. It's that they believe it's supposed to be this way. So you have two different types of leadership, right? You have this selfish, fear-deficit-driven, and then you have this benefit-driven. And the ones that make the more stable groups socially are the ones that are more benefit-driven, the, the ones that are more aggressive. And by aggressive in this instance, I mean the ones who will uh, suddenly react and they will snap and bite and they will fight other dogs. Those ones tend to be deficit driven right? the the ones that are elite dogs because they have what it, what it truly takes to stay at the top those are the dogs that will take on all comers they will take a bite they will take an argument they will brush it off they're not the ones that will dwell on it for ages so it, think of it as uh, you will have seen that particular um i don't know that department head who has gotten to the, the top of, his, of their game by putting other people down. Uh, that's a deficit leader. That's someone who is looking over the shoulder the whole time, putting everybody else down so that nobody can rise to the top. Whereas you have, you, you have other leaders who want nothing more than for you to supersede them because that means that their team is growing, their team is healthy and vibrant, and everything that comes from that benefits the culture of the company entirely. That's a benefit leader. So 
most of us have seen those two polarities, and there's obviously there's there's gamut in between, right? But you're getting what I'm saying. Then you have your upper tier dogs. So those are the dogs that um, could eventually compete for the elite slots, um, but the they tend to be more upper tier dogs than they do elite dogs. There's not many elite dogs. There's not much room for those. Um, but your upper tier dogs, that can be a, a sizable group. But those are dogs that uh, they're almost a nucleus unto themselves. They integrate with the other dogs. The other dogs want to integrate with them. Um, there's a certain type of communication and a certain affirmation of relationships that's occurring that way. Um, but generally speaking, the upper dogs are catered to by the lower tier dogs. Right? Your mid tier, um, they just kind of sit in the middle ground. Your lower tier dogs are the dogs that basically appease just about everybody else and your bottom tier dogs are the ones that really you got to watch out for them because they're your most uh outcast dogs so for them it can be super stressful now you would think that stress would peak at the bottom and stress would be minimal at the top but it's not it's not quite that way um but neither is it an hourglass shape either. So the most stress tends to happen around that cusp between lower and mid-range. Because those dogs are the ones that... The dogs are trying to struggle to come out of the lower tier and up into the mid and upper tier um, status. Whereas your mid-tier dogs are desperately trying to at least stay there so they don't want to fall down into the lower tier dogs. Because what's happening with each of these classifications is that kind of prioritizes what access you have to specific resources. And those resources can be other dogs playing with other dogs. It can be something as ridiculously benign as grass that there's this nice patch of grass that we want to eat, but you can't because the upper tier dogs have got to go first. So, but there can also be situations whereby um, your lower and mid tier dogs tend to be the most unstable dogs. And those tend to be the dogs that get into the most fights. So they're the ones that have the big snarls, the barks, and the ones that are kind of running along, snapping at each other, making a, making a massive racket. Whereas when you have um, your upper tier dogs getting into it, that's a different kettle of fish. When your bottom tier dogs, or you, sorry, your your lower tier dogs are getting into it with upper tier dogs, those are the fights where you've got to watch out because those can be pretty serious. Whereas you, your lower mid tier, that tends to be a lot of, there's that's a massive pressure cooker of stress sitting there because it's so dynamic all the time. That's the bulk of your group, that mid-lower group. And then it teardrops off into the, the bottommost layer. Right? And then um, it also teardrops off into the upper and the elite layers. But that big, that biggest section being your lower and mid-tier, that's where you want to watch out for. You've got to make sure that dogs aren't being bullied in there, that they're not being mobbed. You've got to make sure that dogs aren't just building up too much distress and they're going to redirect at any moment. Those sorts of things. Now... Pretty much like any people, like if, if we go to a party, not everyone's jumping up on the table having a great time. Some people are actually just sort of sitting off in the shadows, hoping to not be witnessed. It's no different for dogs. Some are social butterflies, some are social introverts, some probably don't even want to be there, but they make the boat, they make the best of it. So you have your different personality schemes, and there are, there are some dogs that... Um, 
they hold themselves apart from the social group. So you would think, well, how do they fit into this particular uh, classification system? Well, they tend to sit in the upper section because the other dogs don't come near them. So if there is this untouchable aura to another dog because they're just going to tell another dog to go away, then that isn't putting them at the bottom because otherwise if a dog were to snap at or, or growl or bark at other dogs all the time, there's other dogs would they would end up ganging up on that, that lower tier dog and put, it, put that dog in its place. But like I said, not every dog wants to be a social butterfly. Some of them are quite happy to sit in the, in the dappled shade of a tree and sleep all day. So, I mean, at, at daycare, at, at Canine Farmstay, where I am, we've got a couple of dogs like that. They're sisters, like they're literally litter mates, and their personalities, then you can see the genetic bias there. They, they don't need to hang around with other dogs. They can be on the fringes of what the other dogs are doing. Occasionally, they'll step in and they'll have a good time. Then they'll, they'll have a jack of that after a couple of minutes, and then they just want to sit in the shade and just chill out all day. Because that's what they're genetically predisposed towards. That's how they get their enrichment. And that's something that we have to look at in multi-dog households and in daycares is which dogs match well together and then we'll establish some sort of a social group that best fits that. Where things go awry is when we only look at play styles and we go, yeah, this will work nicely. And then all of a sudden we have too many upper tier dogs together. That means that that group might function for a little while, but at some point, they can't all be the same social status. Because that, it, it's just not going to happen. If you take all of the upper tier dogs and put them in their own yard, that upper tier is going to split back into elite, upper, mid, lower, and bottom tiers. If I take all of the bottom tier dogs and put them into their yard, they're going to split up into elite, upper, mid, lower, bottom tier dogs. If I take take all of the of any one particular group, they're all going to split themselves back up. It's it's like watching bacteria grow, right? It, they split themselves up into these groups. They form new hierarchies. And the same thing goes. If I have a bunch of dogs that uh, fit into the social group in one way, and then I take half of that group out, next thing you know, the entire yard has changed because I'm missing a huge chunk of my social framework now all of the dogs have to re-establish themselves in sports there was a uh, in sports psychology there was this um a guy i used to play with in munich and he had this really cool thing it was every team becomes a new team when one person joins it it doesn't matter how big the team is that one person changes the entire team and our dogs aren't really that different they have their established social status, but as soon as another dog comes in, that dog needs to figure out how they slot in. And they don't just start at the bottom and work their way up or start at the top and work their way down. They slot into where they think they can compete and hustle to get to what they want. Some dogs are driven by social status. Other dogs aren't. Now... In order to make sure that we are able to facilitate these things, we've got to be able to referee and we've got to be able to coach our dogs before and during they get into an environment where social exchanges are going to happen.
refereeing is easily explained as legalistic rules maintenance. What do I mean by refereeing? It's exactly that. There are certain things that in, when I'm, I'm running a yard or I've got dogs at home, there are certain things that are okay. There are a, there are a select few things. They will never, ever be okay. Yeah. So for that to happen, I mean, I have to establish then clear and consistent rules that apply to every single dog. And there will also be certain rules that apply to that particular dog. Because for whatever reason, perhaps they're... Um, Keffy. Keffy's a jumper. Keffy's looking at getting into stuff all the time. His nose will take him to places and Codes is still sleeping. But there are other situations where if the birds are feeding the bird feeder, then I might need to be careful because when there's food around, Codes is most definitely the elite dog and Keffy's still running around trying to figure stuff out. And if he gets too close, she's going to tell him to back off. So I have to be able to referee those particular scenarios in such a way that I can unplug myself and the dogs will referee themselves. That's where we kind of slide over into coaching. So coaching really is about building confidence. It's about taking the savage nature of our dogs and putting that to good use. So tug, exercise, those sorts of things. And it's also the civil skills like place uh, crate training, obedience skills, agility skills, those sorts of things, which all kind of fuse together to create, um, it creates a specific behavioral topography within which our dogs are able to function. So place comes into its hand, in its own, like place, go to bed, right? Before meal times, both my dogs are on the back deck. I've got a heap of food in my hands. I tell them to go to bed. They do their overexcited thing. They jump on their beds. I will do whatever I need to do to feed my dogs. Sometimes I will set the bowls up, I'll make them wait, I'll say thank you, and the dogs have to navigate their way to the food bowls. That came after a long time of being able to feed one dog at a time, release one dog at a time to their food, and then that's just in a straight line, and then I'll do it crisscrossed, and then I'll do it random, and then my dogs never know what's going on, and then I'll make my dogs stop and go back, and then I'll release them both at the same time. There's an intricate process for them to realize I am not favoring one dog above the other. It is random. So by that, I'm able to eliminate a source of conflict, food in particular, or any other resource like food, water, you, uh, vomit, feces, um, yeah, the water bowls, uh, beds, toys, all sorts of things. Anything that could be of any value to our dogs and that could be anything that lands in your yard. Right? We need to be able to set up situations whereby our dogs are able to resolve conflict matters on their own. So if a dog of mine jumps onto a bed or jumps onto a pedestal, that's an immediate signal for me to go everything revolves around that one dog that one dog is no longer comfortable they've sent me a high priority email it's come in i've opened it up no other dog will touch this dog and it simply doesn't matter what is going on perhaps it's a play situation and the dog believes hey i'm just going to get up here and play escape but the rule is consistent as soon as i see that high priority email landing in my inbox hey i need help i've got to be there and through that then, when I'm consistent enough with that, what happens is my dogs learn whenever I go here, I'm untouchable. And then what that means to the other dogs is whenever they go there, 
don't touch them. So now my dogs have this calm zone. I go here. It could be their crate. It could be their kennel. It could be um, on a table. It could be on a chair. It could be a towel. doesn't matter what it is, but it's a safe space where they can go. And the other dogs will honor that safe space and leave that dog alone whilst you're not there. So as long as you're able to eliminate conflict sources and you're able to establish the clear and consistent rules for all of your dogs, you can then you can establish specific rule sets that your dogs will honor when you're not there. It's not a 100% system. If your dogs are dicey, then they've got to be isolated. If you don't trust your dogs, they have to be isolated from each other while you're not there. It's, it's that clear cut. We're not going to take any, any gambles in you coming home to puncture wounds in your dogs. Right. So if at any stage of the game you believe that your dogs are aggressing towards each other, they're isolated while you're not away. Well, sorry, while you're away. But the coaching itself, that's like the training, right? That's, it's really, really important because what that allows us to do is allows us to define weaknesses that our dogs have. Maybe our dogs are reactive. Maybe our dogs are in some other way defensive. Maybe our dogs are uh, too assertive. Maybe our dogs are, uh, I don't know, they're just lacking confidence, for example. So they're every, every facet of their life is tainted with deficit and I've got to change that around. So what I need to do then is if I define a weakness, now I can work at making that strong. I can get a trainer in. I can look it up on YouTube. I can look it up on the internet in some other way. I can get onto a group like our group and I can ask that question. Hey, I've got a problem with this. What do I do? So if I first am able to put a name to the weakness, if I can identify it, then I can make it strong. Then I can make it into something that is worthwhile. Now I have eliminated a source of conflict. I also need to be able to define my lifestyle. So my lifestyle is not necessarily the same as yours. There are There is a bunch of things that I will allow my dogs to do that I would not recommend for a companion dog owner to let get away because I can read a dog faster. I can gauge and predict where the behavioral momentum is taking the dogs. And I can figure out what is going to push a particular dog or group of dogs to um, to a conclusion that I may like or not like. And if things go sideways, I've got plans that are relatively well rehearsed and I can put an end to a situation fairly quickly without too much, too much negative fallout, right? Whereas for an average companion dog owner, that becomes more difficult. Because what tends to happen is your dog park thing. And uh, uh, I take my dog out to the dog park. They go nuts. They get into a fight. Oh, okay, that, that sucked. Next weekend, I take my dog out to the dog park. They go nuts. They get into a fight. Oh, I think there's a rhythm here. And then you repeat that, and but you never stop. Every time your dog goes to the dog park, they get into a fight. But because you don't have the skills or because we don't have the skills to be able to uh, name it, identify it, and then make that a strength, make that problem go away because we can't do that it, it it's an unconscious skill to us we're unconsciously incompetent as um, Maxwell would say so if I don't know what I'm looking for then I'll never know how to solve the problem 
right? So what I need to do then is I need to define a particular lifestyle that I can affect. When I can affect that particular lifestyle, now I can turn around and say, you can this, you may not that. And then for our dogs, they suddenly go, do you know what, there's this referee floating around. If I play the game of life out of bounds, I want to get red carded, I'm going to get sin bin, I'm going to get timed out, I'm going to get whatever. But there's going to be a repercussion for stepping outside of the rules of what is permissible. And that is totally okay, and everybody has permission to do that. We're talking about savage predators. Savage, competing predators for the same resource. And it is an artificial construct in how they live. The dogs we have today in themselves are an artificial construct. There are no doodles in the wild. So we have to keep those things in mind. Our Kelpies are... They do not exist as a natural part of the world. Everything about our beautiful dogs is artificial. But along that, along with that comes our responsibility to be able to take the helm and steer where that boat's going to go. And that is your lifestyle. So once you've determined your lifestyle, what is okay and what is not okay, suddenly now I can build those ecosystems of behavior to make that lifestyle happen. I, I have to be able to teach specific skills, irrespective of what the purpose is of my dog, right? For example, my dog has to be able to walk with me, not in competition with me. They shouldn't be choking themselves out on a collar. They shouldn't be causing themselves shoulder constriction. They shouldn't be caught in a harness. They shouldn't be causing themselves all sorts of injuries and over, overwhelm and all sorts of negative things because we can't curtail their excitement we should all be excited but there is a point to where we realize that excitement is now distressing and for a dog it is very very easy to get into that distressful state they're built for it and it is up to us to make sure that we coach them back into that eustress that performance enhancing stress we don't need them to do 250 kilometers an hour down the freeway it's exhilarating it's fun but it's also scary as, and I have no time to brake, I can't steer, I can only drive in a straight line, but if I do the freeway at 110 kilometers an hour, suddenly I can go further, I can get there safer, I can enjoy the ride, my stress levels are down, and ultimately, doing 250Ks down the freeway, you do that from Newcastle to Sydney, and then do, then do 110, you'll save yourself that ad absolute best i reckon you'd save yourself 20 minutes and that and the risk of driving at 250ks isn't worth 20 minutes to me and i'm sure it's not to you either and it's certainly not to your dog so certain skills that will help just about any lifestyle uh, crate crate training is fantastic especially in multi-dog households one of the things about multi-dog households your dogs never get a break from each other your dogs are with each other 24-7. Any of you who have grown up in sibling households, you know what I'm talking about. You're with your brother or sister 24-7. By the time you're old enough to get a break, you relished it. Because you're with each other so long, you start ribbing into each other. You start hassling each other. You start going sideways at each other, dobbing each other in, doing things to get a rise out of each other in a negative way. 
dogs aren't any different. And the crate allows you to isolate your dogs beautifully. Now they've got their own bedroom, they can chill out, they've got their relaxation space, their green room, whatever you want to call it. Place is also a good one. So they have a they have a bed for themselves that they don't have to share. If they want to, that's fine, but they need to have a dynamic safe space that they can access when you're not there as well as when you are there. Uh, some artificial control. You've got to be able to verbally redirect what your dog's doing at an absolute minimum. You should be able to stop your dog from doing whatever it is that they're doing by using markers, using words that means something to your dog rather than just coming in blurting out obscenities you should also so heal we've talked about you should be able to call your dog off of something so a simple recall um, and start stop button behaviors so we, we kind of talked about that before like if i go if i'm training my dogs the first thing I, i'll say to my dog that i'm about to train is are you ready and they will show me that they literally it's a question if they're ready they're going to get up off their place they're going to come over to me they're going to be looking enthusiastic they're going to be jumping onto a pedestal if it's available they're going to be getting into stuff they're going to be doing things yes you're ready but then there also comes a time where i'll say thank you it's time to switch off you're at liberty now or it's time to switch off get back on your bed get in your crate whatever it is go there chill out we're done now for whatever reason that is those are, are transferable skills clock on clock off this event here is going to go sideways. Everybody clock off. You go over there. You go over there. Chill out. And through that, I can dictate the what I perceive as the speed limit for the group. I can slow everybody down. I can speed everybody up. Or I can work at an individual level. What happens then is because I'm coming along with these artificial skills, they're not forgotten just because I'm not there brain works by teaching them something so now whenever they come into a situation like that stuff lights up in the brain it changes the their their, their worldview so because their worldview is now changed artificially that comes into how they lead their life naturally so now we've been able to establish a particular culture within what um, within a system that there are certain things that are good there are certain things that are bad avoid the bad desire the good Now, one of the things that is hard to deal with in a multi-dog household is how to deal with conflict. So let's, um, let's define conflict. Conflict is when our dogs uh, are not able to detach themselves from a particular Let's just call it an argument. Put, let's put things into a, a pretty clear and definable situation. Most of, our, uh, 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 most of us have seen an issue where I've got food and my dogs suddenly go nuts for it. Um, when I was in Munich, I, I, had a, I had an acquaintance and he would get his dog and my dog into all manner of fights. Every single time that we'd get together, he'd managed to find a way of getting our dogs to fight. And I was so jack of it. I think the last one was with some fish. He went and he got both of the dogs to do a whole bunch of stuff. I wasn't around at, at the time. I was doing something else. He was getting them to do sits and, and whatever, just, just mucking around. But then he paid his dog, but not my dog. His dog is quite un, was quite unstable. 
um, my dog was quite reactive at the time. So my dog turned around and says, hey, this sucks. I don't think I like that. I did the work. Where's my fish? So he dug into the other dog's mouth to take the fish out of that dog's mouth. And that dog said, no, no, that's not cool. So that's a point of conflict. There's a massive amount of resource that you've just made me work for. And you've given all of that resource to one other individual, not me. So conflict is when our dogs desire something in competition with another dog. But there are varying states of conflict resolution, right? What I've just described to you is is a pretty high heated conflict situation and it's not okay. That needed to get shut down pretty hard pretty fast. No one was hurt. Some emotions and egos were battered, but everything was all right. There, there is a sliding scale of what is tolerable and what is not tolerable. And this is kind of where it gets a bit dicey for someone like myself because I can turn around and I can let dogs get away with a lot more because I know what I'm looking for. Whereas if you've got a couple of, of companion dogs, um, I would put the brakes on a lot quicker. So let's let's put some let's throw some terms out there and give you some tools to be able to deal with things. Much like yourself, if you're sitting there with uh, with a friend or your spouse and you could be talking about, hey, what movie are we going to watch tonight? That tends to be a conversation. Right? Hey, what do you want to watch? Oh, I want to watch Star Trek. Yeah, I don't want to watch Star Trek. Oh, I want to watch this. No, I don't want to watch Wuthering Heights. I want to watch Star Trek. And at some point, there's a conflict there, right? There are two parties that are desiring complete opposite things from the same resource. No, I want this out of that resource. I want that out of that resource. But there's only one resource. And this is now starting to suck. If I can't get past this situation with a conversational tone, it's going to at some point turn into a, something more heated. And it goes from that aggravated conversation into an argument. Okay? So if our dogs are having a conversation about something, that's okay. They should be allowed to have a conversation about something. If a dog is standing too close to another dog and they're waiting for the other dog to move away, I might be okay with that. That's a conversation. Or two dogs standing next to each other and one puts its head on the withers of another dog and that dog says, yeah, it's a bit too much for me. I don't think I'm really ready for you to one-up me. And they put their head over the shoulders and then they start staring at each other. They're looking at each other for a little bit and they start to move around in position. That's a conversation. They're having a social conversation, and that is a social hierarchy conversation. I am higher in the hierarchy than you, nay nay. I am in the higher. I am higher than you, and it is not my belief that there are equals of the same gender on the hierarchical ladder. If you're of the same gender then it is, there is a linear aspect to it. It can still be dynamic. Sometimes we jump off rungs and we get down on the bottom of it with the context changes. But I don't tend to find that, that, there, is an, that there is a horizontal hierarchy. It's vertical. Unless there's a male and female, then things can be, they can literally stand next to each other. So the conversational tones tend to occur in the same social status groups. 
though, because they're, they're more they're more genial. It's two dogs talking to each other, trying to figure something out. And usually, vast majority of the time, unless we go sticking our thumbs into it, um, things work out okay. Things can get a little bit heated and they can get a little bit argumentative and that's where you you have to know your limits you have to know your dog's limits that's that's the caveat if you don't know your limits then you don't allow things to escalate beyond the conversational tone the more you know so this goes more for professional handlers and, and daycare the more you know about the individual dog the more you know about the social standing of the groups within sorry the dogs within the, that particular group the more you know how to read canine body language, the more you can let them discuss. And you can let them argue because they're not gonna they're not gonna fight in having an argument. Right? It's not like it's Christmas time and there's the last G.I. Joe on the shelf. It's literally just a case of um, yeah I, actually I was in the queue first. No, I was in the queue first. Really? I thought you were in that queue. No no. That's a conversation. There was a there was a mistake no problems, everything's sorted out. And then you have arguments because, well, that actually, that's my parking spot. No, that's my parking spot. And you have this constant, no, anything you say plus one. And that turns into an argument. And then we have to make sure that people aren't getting out of their cars and having a bit of biffo. And our dogs, again, aren't much different. Some of them are quite ready to have some biffo and they live for it. Others, they're really not ready for an argument and they'll just slam another dog because they're too scared. So... I have to be able to interject at a moment that is pertinent to the individual dogs in question. But I also have to be aware of what's happening around those two dogs. If their discussion is starting to heat up all of the other dogs, everything stops. Now what happens then, worst comes to worst, uh, it's going to happen at some point, dogs argue. And they argue heatedly and they'll argue and they'll be quite aggravated. And in all honesty, I'm not going to talk about how to break up fights in this particular um, podcast. But what I want to talk about is how do I deal with the situation? So you're at daycare and a couple of dogs have just started going off at each other. Or you're at home. Um, I don't know. You, you dropped, a, you dropped a, a cracker and they're both fighting over the cracker. You're going to stop that fight. And then you're going to punish both of the dogs. I'll repeat that. There is there are two dogs fighting. So that they're not they're not injurious. There's lots of spit. There's lots of noise. They're up on their back legs. They're they're battering each other. They might have a hold of some fur. But they're not coming at each other with um, injurious intent. It's an aggravated argument. Both of the dogs will receive some sort of a punishment. So what I'll do at the, at the absolute least is both of the dogs will be crated. Uh, that, that's the absolute minimum. Why do I punish both of the dogs? So punishment is anything that makes a behavior less intense and or less frequent. And in this particular issue, I need that aggravated mood to become a lot less intense. They can, um, they can have a chip on their shoulder. I don't care about that. But they can't believe that aggression will pay. And as soon as I see anything like that, then both parties or all parties will be put, put into some sort of an isolation. 
um, whether that's a, a kennel, whether that's a, uh, a pen, whether that's their own yard, whether that's a crate, whatever that is, they're going to be separated and they're going to get, they're going to stay in there for a, a, a number of minutes. Why do I not, I will first deal with the most aggressive dog and then work my way down to the least aggressive. Now, why do I not just take the most aggressive dog and only deal with that dog is because I've got my referee hat on, right? Anybody who watches sports, like the, take, take footy as a great example. It's always the player that punches back that gets penalized. The other player who's been mouthing off for, I don't know, the whole game, doing things that they shouldn't be doing, they fly underneath the radar. And eventually, the other player just has it up to their back teeth and they start swinging. Who started the fight? And it's the same thing with dogs. There's a bunch of things where dogs aggravate each other throughout the course of an entire day and then someone punches back. And if we only ever target the dog that punches back, i.e. the dog that we witness, we're not addressing the root cause of the issue. First and foremost, aggression never pays. So the one who comes out swinging, there's a punishing consequence for that right there. But then the other dog will also receive a punishing consequence. But that allows me to get things into a far more safe and manageable situation. Because let's just say, for example, something is wrong with the, the aggressive dog. The dog that I saw that come out swinging, I take him to the crate and I realize, I oh, don't know, there's a thorn in their foot. Oh, there's a problem. There's a trigger right there. Take the thorn out, put them in the crate for 20, 40, 60, 80 minutes, whatever. And I'll just allow that cortisol to taper off. Cortisol has a half-life of 20 minutes. So we'll just kind of wait for that to taper off. And then we can get our dogs back out under control. Same with the, the, the target dog. We'll just call them the target dog. I don't know whether that dog will now go off and be aggressive to another dog because they've got so much cortisol flowing through them. I don't know whether they have been flipping the other dog the bird for ages and just and it's their actions that has resulted in that. Either which way, both parties need some chill out time and they should be crate trained. So I put them in the crate, the crate is associated with chilling out, it doesn't matter how they feel going in, they feel calmer coming out. I do believe that there is a critical limit as to what is what is most advantageous and that critical mass where things become very hard to deal with. And that critical mass is three. I tend to find that once we get to that dog number three, things become very difficult to affect. In the case of a companion dog situation, we've got three dogs in a yard. That means then that the time spent between person and dog at an individual level is reduced down to a third of what it could be. If it was an individual dog, you'd spend over 100% of your available time with that particular dog. But because you've got three, then now you can only spend 33% of that available time with that particular dog. That then in turn means that your relationship is going to suffer 
and it is not going to be necessarily perceived as being of such a priority given that your dogs are spending 100% of their time with each other. Now, just the scale of economics itself should show you that you come in and you spend one third of, the, of whatever part of the day with each dog individually, but they're spending their time 100% together. So the relationship that they have with each other, they're going to be far more attentive to each other than they are to you. So if you're trying to train your dog and you're letting the other dogs run around, they're already trained to be attentive to each other. So if the two dogs that are floating around doing whatever it is that they want are distracting your dog, that means that the 33% of the time that you have to this one dog is being undermined by the others because of the culture of what you've got in your backyard, right? And then the more dogs you have, the less time you're spending with that dog individually. So if you have four dogs, you're only spending 25% of your time. Right? So you can see where I'm going. It's important that the time that we spend with our dogs is healthy, it's adaptive, it's enriching. If we can do that, then our dogs will perceive us to be something better than what we are. Because we're doing things for our dogs, we're providing things for our dogs. Through us, all good things come. And then when we are able to do that, we are able to artificially place ourselves in a higher position of priority in their worldview. And that's an important thing. Because ultimately, at some point, you're going to have to put the handbrakes on whatever it is that they're doing. And if I come along and I have hardly anything to do with them and say, hey, cut that out. No, whatever. What do you do? But if I come in and go, hey, cut that out. And I'm, and I'm the guy that delivers the quality stuff. They're like, oh, dude, so sorry. Completely different mood changer. But there's another reason for the critical mass as well. If I have an even number of dogs, if I well, if I have two dogs, if one wants to play and the other one doesn't, the one who doesn't want to play can tell the other one to go away. But when I have three dogs, I'm going to find that one dog's not ready to play, the other dog will allow themselves to be made ready to play, and the third dog can't stop themselves. And then those three dogs will revolve around that in a vicious cycle. The issue there is that they never truly get downtime. They're always on the go. They're always overexcited. They're always close to overwhelm. And what will tend to happen is, and it'll happen at the worst possible time, is third wheeling. Third wheeling is when two dogs or multiple dogs are playing with each other and everything is fine. And then Nosy Parker comes over, puts her nose and says, hey mate, what's up? And they want to play. And the other dogs, well, it's kind of aggravating. We kind of had this really good thing going on and uh, Neville Nomates is coming over here and now you want to play. That's, that's really not cool. It's a point of aggravation. Or if two dogs are playing, the other dog comes in and they're just kind of, they're coming in at a submissive, um, with submissive communication. So they're licking around the face the whole time or they're sniffing the groin or they're doing all these other things. It's just, it, it disturbs the other dogs whilst they're having a social exchange. And that can create aggravation. And then if we don't allow that, if we don't referee that and allow that to go away, then what happens is I'm accidentally coaching that to be normal. And now I have a greater chance of conflict. I have a greater chance of having fights. It means that my risk management is down to zero. 
So it's something to be aware of. Um, I know that we have dogs for a variety of reasons. And some of those reasons mean that I may have more than three dogs. And look, that's totally cool. As long as we realize that I need to spend quality time the way that individual dogs perceive that the time is qualitative. So for some dogs, that's just to be able to lie down next to you and have a sleep. For other dogs, it's playing tug. It's just it doing a whole heap of combative expression and being wild and frenetic and really pushing it out to the edge. And then obviously you've got a whole world of expression in between. The point is not that we are doing anything with our dog, is that we are doing that something with our dog. Again, so that it's healthy, it's enriching, and it's adaptive for the dog that is in front of you. That means that we need to be able to determine um, what our dog's preferences are so that we can deliver the right amount of nice consequences. And we also have to be able to determine what our dog's turn-offs are so that we can understand how to um, minimize the impact of nasty consequences. wrap that is uh, social systems of dogs we've talked about a bunch of things in in episode 18 uh, really to do with how to manage social fluency and social changes in our dog's hierarchy if you've got any questions please do get in contact with me at barefootpaws.com.au you can email me uh, directly at barefootpaws at mail.com you can come over to Facebook. You can get on the group, the Barefoot Paws discussion group. You can uh, uh, apply to join that. And as soon as you're in, you can ask a whole bunch of questions. You can start sharing video and everybody can dissect it. Be great to have uh, some extra people in there. It's already a really, really good atmosphere. People are connecting. It's uh, some really healthy exchanges of information. Look, I really hope that this episode has helped you out. I'd love to hear from particular stories. And yeah, dude, let me know.